Welcome to the Vitality Shift Podcast for Chiropractors. I'm your host, Dr. Don McDonald, author of the best-selling book, The Underdog Curse. Weekly, we will be interviewing amazing chiropractors from around the world, finding out how they made their vitality shift. If you're a chiropractor that either wants to just move your practice away from treating pain and conditions, or if you just want to stay inspired, this podcast is for you. For more information on past shows, please visit www.drdonmcdonald.com, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, podcast listeners. Hope you're doing well this week. Um, again, welcome to the Vitality Shift for Chiropractors. Um, I uh, decided what I'm going to do today is I'm also going to do another throwback. And the reason I'm going to do this throwback is because this was our second top downloaded um, episode over the last two years, and it's almost 6,000 downloads on this one. And, and this is from my mentor, Dr. Michael Hall. And the reason that I want to play this one again is just because this is so important where Dr. Michael Hall will review three different um, research articles because right now in chiropractic, you know, the big thing is about evidence-based. Um, and and if I think if we open our mind to looking at the the actual correct evidence and, and using our brain and developmental physiology, we understand the huge benefit that we can have provide our people when they're under chiropractic care. So um, I'm going to uh, have this episode play. This is about a, I think a 58 minute episode and it's so full of gems. Um, I listened to it actually a couple times and I'm going to listen to it again because it just, I think we can keep coming back to this because this helps to increase the certainty for chiropractic. So um, I hope you enjoy this. Uh, as you can tell, we've now um, decreased the episode frequency down to every two weeks. Uh, Brandy and I have been pretty busy with our programs and stuff, so we're we're going to now be launching um, the Vitality Shift podcast every two weeks. So I hope you enjoy this throwback episode, and have a good one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Breaking the Underdog Curse for Vitalistic Chiropractors. This is your host, Dr. Don McDonald, and I get to bring back one of my mentors. We, I've been doing a lot of my coaches, and now this is one of my mentors. We already had him on earlier on. He's probably back earlier on in the podcast series, but uh, I wanted to get my uh, my main man, Dr. Michael Hall, back on the podcast. Welcome to the podcast, my man. Thank you very much, Dr. Don. Proud to be here and uh, happy to be a part of things. That's awesome. So um, for all of these, you out there who maybe just started listening to the podcast more recently, Dr. Michael Hall is my, he's like my, he's like my, um, my go-to man if I'm like stuck with something because he's, he's like the brains. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've had him up to Edmonton and we probably had to uh, put on probably about 10 or 12 or I think even more seminars with him and brought him to Edmonton. We brought him to, to Toronto. Um, we've just worked together with him and, and he's really helped to shape a lot of the stuff I do in my practice. So I'm super excited to share this conversation with everybody. It's great to be here, Don. It's great to be here. The Canadians have always been a very welcoming crowd. And so it's, it's a great opportunity to uh, share a lot of good information and uh, hopefully life changing for our patients. That's going to be awesome. And again, the nice thing about this podcast is we're all over the world, right? So there's everybody there from down under to the UK to uh, to the United States and all that stuff. So so I want to just start off with, because we always have this buzzword in chiropractic is, you know, you have to be a vitalistic chiropractor or you have to, or you are an evidence-based chiropractor. And, and I want to just get your opinion on why do you have to be one or the other? And what, what are your thoughts on that? That drives me crazy. Oh, that uh, we could be here for a few days. But <laughs> here's a couple of things that they go to, to work on that is that, you know, in a large part, we want to know that what we're doing is real 
and it's been researched, if you will, and defined and, and so forth. But as a chiropractor, we understand that when a joint doesn't move properly, i.e. subluxate, then there's an alteration of function. Now, what is that function? Is it a change in muscle? Is it a change in blood flow? Is it a change in brain function? And uh, what we've done now through the years, we've done more and more research on the effects of subluxation. And now we have research saying that the adjustment now also affects blood flow, affects muscle, affects um, imaging changes in the brain, also affects the brain. So now we're, we're in a real interesting part of, of healthcare because for the most part, Don, here's the facts. Healthcare worldwide is failing the people. Mm -hmm. That's the big deal. Yep. Uh, people are getting sicker. Congest uh, cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of man worldwide, especially hypertension. Hypertension of which 90% is considered to be non-pathological and preventable. Right. So what, what is medicine going to do? And so we're in a big pickle because uh, people are getting more diabetes, more strokes, more heart attacks. We're failing the people on a worldwide basis. So something has to give. And what happens is we start kind of pointing fingers at each other. Well, what I do is better than what you do and blah, blah, blah. And the facts are we're all failing miserably until we get a congruent message together. And the facts are is that when your spine is in alignment, your brain functions better and your health is better. And that's the simple facts and it's supported today. Time Magazine just did a huge thing on the science of happiness. It should be in every chiropractor's office, but not just the chiropractor, every healthcare provider. So what we've got to realize is that it's really not about research because research in and of itself is very flawed. In other words, if I'm going to take care of a patient, I got to take care of all the baggage and luggage that comes along with that patient. That patient's got a background, they've got a past, they've got a future, they've got a day. Um, it can't be, oh, here's the research about their spinous on T4. It's right. about their life. And you and I, and if we look at basic communication, if you read uh, marketing research on communication, most of our communication to each other doesn't occur through our, the meaning of our words. It occurs through the tone of our voice and our facial expression. Mm -hmm. So we talk about patient education. Well, what about doctor education? You know, uh, patients want to go somewhere that they know that someone cares for them. Um, but, but anyway, on long story short, uh, we're not doing the job that we need to do for the population of the people worldwide. And healthcare has got to change. And right now, chiropractic is poised to be that change agent worldwide. And that's what's got to happen. We don't necessarily need more surgeries. We don't exactly need more drugs. We need lifestyle changes. But what we're getting into is that we're, we're getting so removed from what those changes should be, we're going to have to create a renaissance period all over again as to what it should be. How should we lead our lives? This podcast is a wonderful example of what it means to actually communicate with people, to talk, to have a congenial conversation about life and about healthcare and about chiropractic. It can't be... It, Here's the thing. When someone says, hey, Dr. Hall, do you have a research article for that? It almost tells me that they don't read research to begin with. Right. I had someone else ask me the day, says, well, Dr. Hall, how do you know we're supposed to, to walk every day? And I just kind of paused. I go, did you really just ask me that question? I said, you've got two legs. So what do you think they're for? Right. Oh, oh well, yeah, yeah. Well, of course. I was like, going, <laughs> it's like, ah. <laughs> and so when we don't use our legs, we don't walk around, we get back pain and we have problems. I said, that. You know, you shouldn't really need a research paper for that. So, you know, when we look at, uh, I was in England not too long ago, and the average Briton walks less than a half mile a day. Wow. Less than a half mile. In the States, we're still counting steps with the Fitbit. And everybody's like, oh, I got to have 10,000 steps per day. But they're not even reaching that. But just realize that 10,000 steps per day is roughly only 40% of our need. <laughs> so um, we're struggling on our standards. We're struggling on what needs to happen. And so 
more than research really is a little bit of, of what you might just simply say literacy. And mm -hmm. if you read the Chronicles of Higher Education several years ago, there was a paper in the United States that 58% of the American population was considered to be illiterate. Now, illiterate doesn't mean you can't read. It simply means you struggle to comprehend. Right. So in other words, if we look at a research paper, we have to realize that research paper is only trying to answer a question. It's not a panacea of health. It's simply looking at a question. You know, does the sun rise? Then now we put a research project together to answer that question. But it doesn't tell you if the, if the sun sets. Right. So um, it, it's difficult in research, and we're struggling to ask the right questions to do the right research. And that's where, that's where we're at today, um, because there's really no money to be made if you and I start walking more every day and talking to each other and get healthier. Right. There's no drug for that. Right. And, uh, you know, autism now is up to one in 36. No one wants to really address the stress mom, the uh, stress environment, the prenatal influences on catecholamines and, and stress organs. No one really wants to talk about stress, although we realize that in the cognitive sciences that stress is implicated in nearly 90 percent of all chronic illness. But no one wants to make that diagnosis. So I've got some great research to kind of share with you today that uh, we can have some fun on those topics. <laughs> okay, that's cool, because what I kind of want to do is I want to talk a little bit about the research that's out there, the stuff that you're excited about for the, all the analytical people. And, and then I want to just talk a little bit about the backbone of why, like how chiropractic would, would relate with all that, and then we'll get out to the, some lifestyle stuff at the end there too. Yeah, sounds great, and, and I really appreciate it, because the whole idea is that the research doesn't matter if we can't change lives, right? Right. So the research should only make us, should only increase our certainty about what we offer and the value of it to people today, even when people don't realize the value, we have to be on guard and on purpose at all times. Right, 100%. So sh show me some exciting research. For all, for our, we'll, we'll, we'll try to solve all, the, all our analyticals out there that like, I need some research, I need information. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's do some fun stuff first, okay? Okay. So, uh, let me share you an article. It's a, it's a couple years old now. It's out of the Neurobiology of Stress, uh, which is one of my, my favorites, if you want. Yes. And, uh, and, and here's the gist. And this is gets fun about research, right? So we know that from the pediatric model that children are born with this big old soft spot up front, right? Yep. And that allows for the prefrontal cortex to grow and develop. Well, that prefrontal cortex is understood throughout the world as our executive center. That's the area that we make decisions with. That's the area that we have good value systems. That's also the area that allows us to dampen inappropriate behaviors. So sometimes, you know, you want to say a bad word. The frontal lobe says, hey, you know what? Don't do that. Um, or bad action or impulsivity. It's our frontal lobes, right? So to, to get into this article, what you really want to realize is that our frontal lobe is what allows us to actually be humane. Right. It actually is what allows us to be human and different than other animals, right? So we actually have free will. Um, but the funny thing about free will is not that you always get to do what you want, but recognizing what is no. Right. What you don't free will, free will, Free will and free choice only exist when there's a consequence to saying no. Mm -hmm. and see, a lot of people want to think that free will and free choice is, well, I just do what I want to do. It's mm -hmm. like, uh, no, it's that when I have a choice to make between what is right and what is wrong, that's what free will is. And so well, actually, in that's, that's interesting because that just reminds me of like, a, like, for example, like a dog, right? So if a dog has, a, has a, an impulse, they just do it. Exactly. And, and so when we have an impulse, we do have a frontal lobe that we can filter that through to, to, 
to not do it. And that actually will differentiate us. <laughs> that, that's exactly what it is because you have, for example, here's a big Butterfinger candy bar and here's a Cobb salad. Right. So your frontal lobe says, well, you should have the Cobb salad. But when your frontal lobe's not working very well, you go for the candy bar. Right. The dog goes whatever's in the bowl. Yeah. Right. That's how, so it's, it's very interesting because now what happens is, is that this lobe of our brain is taking a huge hit. Now, just for a sidebar, basic science tells us that when we move, the neurological pathways, especially from our legs, the dorsal and ventral spinal cerebellar tracts, provide the primary sensory input to our cerebellum and our frontal lobes. So that kind of sets the tone for what this is all about to the chiropractor. So we realize that when the spine is healthy, when, the, when they're free of subluxation, and we are active, then we have the best choice or best chance at having a healthy frontal lobe. Okay? Yep. Yep. Now, this journal is the neurobiology of stress. That should tell us something when there's a journal. <laughs> okay? Right. So it's the effects of stress on exposure on the, the effects of stress exposure on the prefrontal cortex, translating basic research into successful treatments. Mm. Kind of a cool article, right? Yes. And if, you, if you want this somehow, I can send it to you in case some of your readers might want to uh, get a hold of it. So let's do some things real quick. Basic research has found that high levels of catecholamines, these are our stress hormones, that are released during stress rapidly impair top-down cognitive function of the prefrontal cortex. Now here's the change that. So it impairs the prefrontal cortex, but it strengthens your alarm response. Right. Okay. So now what happens is when we don't have a good functioning prefrontal cortex, we are more affected from a sympathetic dominance or a stress physiology. Now, what this means to us is that earlier we said, what's the number one killer of man worldwide? High blood pressure. Mm -hmm. For you and I, that's called sympathetic dominance. Right. So when the frontal lobe is not functioning, the ability to inhibit your sympathetics is reduced, and there comes high blood pressure, mm -hmm. as well as a host of other symptoms like insomnia, um, loss of near vision, headaches, migraines, neck pain, back pain. It goes on and on and on. But for this paper right now, let's just look at, at hypertension. Yeah. Um, since that seems to be a big issue worldwide, right? Mm -hmm. So um, while strengthening the emotional and habitual responses of the amygdala and basal ganglia, so chronic stress reduces the dendritic growth of the prefrontal cortex, so is reducing or changing the frontal lobe while it actually increases our alarm response physiology. Mm -hmm. Now, for you and I, guess what our biggest stressor is? What do you think our biggest stressor is today? Uh, not moving? And I'll share this with you in just a minute. Brain drain, the mere presence of one's smartphone <laughs> oh, there you go. reduces our cognitive capacity. <laughs> now, I know you love cell phones. <laughs> well, I, I do, and, and here's what we're kind of getting to, is that you and I would never think of a cell phone as being addictive. But what happens is, fortunately, and, and we're very blessed where we live and so forth, that our biggest stressor is whether or not I need to get on Facebook or an email or a, an Instagram or Snapchat. We're almost stressed out if we can't check it or have access to it. So what this article on neurobiologist stress is all about is that when we are stressed, the chronic effects of stress is changing our judgment is changing how we think. So what we're doing is that we're getting more and more into chronic stress, which is changing how our brain is wired. So now we're almost feeling like we have to get up at night and check our email. 
or check our smartphone for, the, for whatever it is. And again, it's not all about, and this is important because we may talk about text neck in just a little bit. Yeah. It's, not that tech, it's not that the technology is bad, is that it's affecting our health and we need to figure out what to do. And it's gonna take the healthcare provider who understands the brain um, to, do, to do something with that. And so when we look at this, is that it goes on through here is that trauma during childhood can be particularly devastating, can have lifelong debilitating consequences. Exposure to stress markedly impairs the executive functions of the highly evolved frontal association cortex while simultaneously strengthening the primitive emotional response of the amygdala. So what that means for us is, guess what the number one disability in the world today is? Mental illness. Mm -hmm. The fastest growing demographic right now is suicide in our 15 to 24 year old kids. Wow. What's happening is, Don, is that we're living in an age of anxiety and depression. We're stressed out of our ever-loving minds, if you will, and we don't know what to do. And mm -hmm. it's going to take the chiropractor who puts their hand on the spine, who calms the patient with their voice, and says, hey, you know what? Today, we're going to start a lifestyle modification program, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to take care of you. Because when you talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, when you talk about anxiety in, in a 12-year-old, is they're very sane physiologically. And so we're seeing this, this structural rewiring of our brain to actually be on alert more easily. Mm -hmm. Like I could say, hey Don, it'll probably take a lot to get you stressed out because you're kind of easygoing, kind of loving kind of guy. You're not so stressed. But what's happening, you and I didn't grow up with a smartphone. Right. Kids nowadays have smartphone and screen access at six months of age. Right. So anxiety levels are heightening at a rate faster than we've ever seen before. And so healthcare providers, especially chiropractors, need to help and say, hey, you know what? People can't do it on their own because they're not thinking this way. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not that we're stupid. It's that our frontal lobe is being rewired, which changes the way, so the way we think. So we don't think about going for a five-mile run. We go, well, I don't have time. I got to go home and check my email. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I got this work project. I got this deadline. I don't have time for anything other than being simply melded into my technology. And so it's creating stress that, we can take antidepressants, we can take anti-anxiety drugs, but it's not making us move anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating subluxation patterns that are creating, and I'll show you a little bit later, it's creating changes in our spine that's now creating degenerative changes and now creating a, a loop cycle that is a positive physiological windup, but a negative outcome for our patients. And now what normally would be a stressor in the 25 to 30 year old is a stressor in the 10 year old. So this is just a really good article to start understanding the changes in the brain that take place with stress. Mm -hmm. The prefrontal, it just kind of goes on and on. It's a, it's a really good article, but it gets into what's called working memory. And for you and I, working memory is about what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. And so you have what's called explicit and implicit. And explicit is things that have your conscious attention. So what you have to think about is that when we're stressed out, we are losing part of our attentional focus. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So it's not, we, don't, we don't forget how to drive a car. We don't forget how to use a fork. We forget, oh, yeah, i got to prioritize this thing over here. In other words, we have trouble even putting the vision board up because we don't know where to start. Right. And so it's a, it's a self-replicating anxiety disorder. And basically, you sometimes hear the word um, paralysis by analysis. Yeah. And so we're getting so caught up in the research. We're getting so caught up in the details that we can't even see that, hey, there's a person over here. We're getting research articles about the brain, this, that, and everything else. It's like, okay, well, you still got to say, hey, you know what? There's a person 
on the other side of this paper that I've got to be able to take care of. And that person's going to look at my face and hear the tone of my voice before they're going to accept my care. So that's what I like by the work of, you know, whether it's Bruce Lipton or Bruce McEwen or these journals. They say, hey, you know what? we got to get back to being caring and empathetic towards each other. So it's a great, great article. Um, uh, again, I was just going to say, Mike, uh, that that also brings it back to the chiropractor, too, because a Absolutely. lot of times we're, we're – we're talking to a lot of chiropractors about how they've got burnt out because they got busy and then they kind of stopped doing self-care. And then when we have a frontal lobe that is, that is altered, then we have a harder time getting that message across and we're less effective too. So that just amplifies it on steroids, how much we need it as a chiropractor, right? That's exactly right. I mean, that's a perfect description because if the healthcare provider is stressed out, he's going to struggle to even go to the office. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, for you and I, and maybe to your listeners, is that the best way to identify your practice is to identify your current care plan yourself. Right. Because if we aren't getting chiropractic care and lifestyle modifications and support, I mean, we all need a coach today. That's just the bottom line, is we all do, and what do you want to call it, an accountability, or a best friend, or a coach, or a lifestyle mentor. We all need that because we're missing that. Mm-hmm. And so you can't, you can't not have that in your life and then go try to put it in someone else's very well. True. And so, but doing that actually makes us more social, which has the benefit of improving our prefrontal cortex, which helps us to overcome the chronic stressors. Totally. So the more I can talk to you and lean on you and you lean on me, the more I don't need my phone anymore. <laughs> there, was a study, there was a study done not too long ago. It was a Gallup study, a survey of 4,000 millennials, and 65% believed that they have an emotional response with their cell phone. Wow. An emotional relationship. Wow. <laughs> that, that's big. That's yeah. huge because that's, that's their life. So when you start seeing things like the, the Echo from Amazon or the, the Chromebox, that now you've got Siri and you've got Alexa and whoever else, that's telling you that we're becoming more antisocial and more anxious. And, and there's, part, there's a problem that we still need each other. Would you, would you say, would you say too, it's kind of the, the human's innate drive for connection that um, a cell phone is kind of like the easy way out. So if you think of connection is like food, uh, the cell phone would be like a Snickers bar and, and actually one-on-one getting out and actually spending time with people would be more of like the salad. You're absolutely right. And what's happening with this is that the more we go for the Snickers or the smartphone, the more we're de-evolving. Yes. The more we're creating a neurodegenerative consequence in the frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. And that's what's important about this paper is that we're seeing, you know, when we talk about when we fire a pathway, we increase the number of connections. And those connections are in what's called dendrites. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a decrease in frontal lobe connectedness by virtue of dendritic atrophy. Yeah. But we're seeing an increase in dendritic growth in the alarm system yeah so which is why we're becoming more and more likely to have a stress response if you take the smartphone away from us than we are if you took away our best friend mm-hmm. wow. and that's the scary change that our children are kind of starting to grow up with and uh, again you know i'll just tell you that uh, just for reiteration the number one disability worldwide is mental health mm-hmm. and for people who are who bleed chiropractic, our early work as chiropractors and early successes took place in the sanitarium. Right. Our best work is when we put our hand on someone and say, hey, you know what? 
I'm going to go through this journey with you. I'm going to take care of you. Mm-hmm. And so when you put your hands on someone, well, we have to have certainty as chiropractors. When I put my hands on you and your spine and remove subluxation, then I know without a doubt I am activating neural pathways to your frontal lobe that will make you a better person after this adjustment than you were before. Mm-hmm. And so you need this care as well as do I lay down the scope. Totally. And, and that's, I think that's what you're talking about too, is that now there are getting, there's getting more research out there where we're actually demonstrating the adjustment and, and that it does light up your brain. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's kind of like, okay, that question has been answered and now let's move on. And what we need is we, we need more chiropractors to decide to get on with it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and that's where we're at. So let me move away from this article, if you will. I think the point's been made here is that under the neurobiologist stress, our frontal lobe is deconnecting and our alarm physiology is upramping. Yeah. And so we need to turn that around. But what goes along with that is, is our children are almost being raised in a state of PTSD. So we tend to think that PTSD is our, our war veterans being, our military being overseas and seeing bad, horrible things happen. Yeah. What we're seeing now is that that horrible event to a veteran may be a test to a 12 year old in school. Right. Yeah. The same responses. And so now um, these childhood traumas, which are nothing more than, you know, you had three followers on Snapchat are creating physiological events that are mimicking horrible dangers. So mm-hmm. let me show you one that, that might kind of bring it back down just a little bit. And this was in the, uh, the Journal of Physical Therapy Science. Uh, again, it's really old papers, 2018. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, cutting edge. Yeah. It's, it's the old stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'll just read the title to you real quick. Correlation between pulmonary function and respiratory muscle activity in patients with, you're going to love this, forward head posture. Oh, there you go. There right? you go. So, now, I like this because, now, this is in the, phys- you don't see this in the chiropractic journals. I'd like to, but, you know, we see it now in, in uh, Journal of Physical Therapy Science. And, um, and what this gets into is that the frontal lobe, one of the things it does is that it inhibits our SCMs. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing now is that two things, is that when I'm under stress, the frontal lobe is doing what? Decreasing in function, which means my inhibition to the SCMs is reduced. Right. Now, as I increase my forward head posture with work activity screens, whichever it might be, I'm also now furthering activating these muscles. So now my SCMs and scalings are becoming steel cables, if you will, which is altering mechanical function of my neck and skull on spine relationship, which creates neck pain, um, degenerative spondylosis, disc injuries, myofasciitis, chronic pain syndromes, and it goes on and on and on. And so this is an interesting article that talked about the effect that secondary postural deformities and chronic postural adenoids have on lung capacity. Now what this means for us, Don, is that in a nutshell, when the head goes forward, your chest expansion diminishes, yeah. which means now your lung volume also diminishes, which means the oxygen that you would get to your brain and the rest of your body is also being diminished. So now rates of volume go up and respiratory rate is tied into cardiovascular system. Mm-hmm. So an indirect inference of this is that patients who have forward head posture will have cardiovascular disease. Right. So, and what was the number one killer of man worldwide? Cardiovascular disease. Or the chiropractor might say, forward head posture. (laughs) Totally, totally. So, 
I was just going to say, just a side note, like just, just knowing this, um, you know, there, there are, you know, there's some chiropractors out there that think that, um, if you have forward head posture, it's not a big deal if they're asymptomatic. And, and I was just wondering, like, if they learned that through school, how could they even learn that? Well, that I, I don't know if you cool. know the answer, but I was just saying, <laughs> well, I have an opinion <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is the difficulty. It's that, that our universities have responsibility to maybe present some of this research, but we're getting caught in an educational dogma that a lot of our schools are teaching students only to the level of national board exams. Mm-hmm. And so they're not getting this. This is 2018. So right. if your curriculum was developed 14 years ago, right. your students are going to miss out. Um, so it's really important. And again, kudos for what you're doing and the listeners, because chiropractors need to have a place to go to get good information. Now, I read probably 75 to 100 journal articles a week, and I read a bunch of books because to me, I want to know my information to take care of the patients that I see. And so I share this with you because your readers now have an access to information that they don't have time to go get. Right. And so when I look at this is that, you know, forward head posture, and when we see forward head posture in the title of an article, we should have that, right? Yeah, totally. Because that's, that's our language. That's our lingo. So it says, you know, for, it starts out, forward head posture is one of the most common musculoskeletal disorders that is associated with the use of imaging devices. All right, so technology and forward head posture. All right, well, now you can add forward head posture and technology means decreased brain function. Mm-hmm. That now leads to anything between memory loss to dementia to Parkinson's to, anti, uh, to depression to anxiety. Now you've got a whole host of things to start working with, even if your chiropractor didn't know anything except how to remove subluxation. Right. So the key is, is that we've got to get chiropractors more certain that, hey, you know what? I don't understand all the science behind this, but I know that that straight neck is not good. Well, and I think this goes to the other point too, because sometimes like I know in Canada, we've, they've gotten to some, some challenges where they're advertising that we're treating conditions. And, yeah. and, and I, I was just wondering your opinion on that because it, it sounded like what we're trying to do is we're trying to basically uh, restore optimum physiology. And then, yeah. and then we don't know exactly how that's going to turn out. So I wonder if you could speak to that. I can. And, and this is a part of our, of a, of a, of a systemized, approach in that just like when you and I took school way back when we took a, a book and let's say an anatomy book and here was a chapter on the back here was a chapter on the upper extremity here was a chapter on the lower extremity then you got into practice and all of a sudden here was a person right. like, well, how do I do that because they're not in chapters so part of the difficulty is when we start treating conditions we lose the ability to take care of a person mm-hmm. because now we're not looking at at how that condition developed and what went behind it and what's going to bring it on in the future and blah, blah, blah. We're, we're getting caught into 4.3 visits for um, mild neck pain. Right. And, but your person may have, a, they may be hypoxic as well. And their lost lower doses and forward head posture and shallow breathing and elevated respiratory rates is what continues this ongoing pain cycle. So they don't fit into a 4.3 visit model. Mm-hmm. And so it's really becoming somewhat difficult because it's our approach to care. Notice the word there, care, yeah. that is what's failing the people. And so the more we're getting so specialized in our approach to treating conditions that right now you've got the urologist, you've got the neurologist, you've got the physiatrist, you've got everyone treating only one system mm-hmm. as they learned in school. And ultimately that doesn't work or bode well for the patient at large. And the tough part is that as a chiropractor, we have such a a mentality that we want to take care of people, which means when you come in, I'm going to palpate your neck and then your middle back and then your lower back. 
and I'm going to adjust and, and remove subluxation as I go. And then by the time you're done, you're subluxation free, now go and be well. As opposed to, well, I'm only going to adjust L4 four times on the right for low back pain. It's like, okay, right. but your neck is still forward, which means that low back pain is going to come back. So now you really haven't done anything for them. But again, a lot of people who don't know that your neck is part of the spine in their low back pain practice, <laughs> yeah, those patients are the ones that are getting kind of misled. And so it, it's a mess. And this is where I'm saying that healthcare as a whole is failing the people. So if you were, if you were looking at a business model, mm-hmm. healthcare would not be a successful model. <laughs> it doesn't meet the demands of the people. Our death rate is going up. One of the latest studies we had is that the last 22 years of, of our life is lived in very poor quality. Uh-huh. So when people can retire and enjoy life, they are too unfit and unhealthy, and all they, they spend their retirement from one doctor to another. Right. And so um, we, we've got to get back to a vitalistic paradigm that says, hey, you know what? Just like our children, what we do with our children today sets the stage for where they are as young adults. Uh-huh. And they need more self-esteem. They need more self-worth, which again is that frontal lobe, right? Uh-huh. In an age of technology where you simply just vertically scroll through Instagram, what did the 12-year-old student learn that day from scrolling through 3,000 Instagram 30-second videos? I think they just probably felt bad about themselves. <laughs> they're comparing themselves to others. That's what's, that's what's happening. They're looking at everyone else doing something while they're simply watching. Right. So their own self-value and self-worth is being compromised because we're not putting some kind of structure on this. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we've got to get back to because it's coming back to a mental illness issue that um, we're just barely seeing the tip of the iceberg on this one. Now, so just, just curious as a, for a question, um, if, if you were responsible to create the um, messaging for chiropractic to the world, yeah. to, to the general population, um, how, how would you, how would you wear that, that messaging? Cause we're not treating mental illness. We're not treating cardiovascular disease. How, how would you kind of vocalize what we do to the general people? What, what I'd like to do is I want to say, you know, to my patients, for example, when they ask, what do I do? I say, well, I change lives. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And mm-hmm. I say, well, what I do has an effect on your nervous system and your nervous system, is what takes care of everything about you so that you can cope in today's world. So I said, when I take care of you and remove subluxation, I may also influence your low back pain, your neck pain, your headaches, but I also am going to change the way you think about things and the way you feel about things. So I'm going to take care of you as opposed to just treating a condition. So what we have to realize is that we truly are nerve doctors or doctors of nervous system. So that when we look at people, we need to assess what is their function. And for example, having a straight neck, having forward head posture means straight up you have less than optimal neurological function yeah. as evidenced by pick any one of these articles I'm sharing with you. <laughs> right. And when forward head posture, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't see forward head posture in literature, did we? No. Much less in our classroom. And if we did, people just kind of made fun of it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now it's, it's leading the journals, if you will, mm-hmm. because the association now between the neck and your brain is a highlight reel for practitioners today. And unfortunately, Chiropractors haven't really jumped on the bandwagon here. Yeah. Now we've seen, we've seen tremendous work, um, but other disciplines now are picking up on it. Mm-hmm. And so the message to the people has to be, hey, you know what? The chiropractor is the ultimate lifestyle coach. 
-hmm. Because really, before you start an exercise program, let me take a look at you and make sure your functional movement is where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And hey, you know what? Let's take a look at your food, make sure you have functional medicine and functional diet. And oh, by the way, let's make sure above all that we look at the functionality of your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And we do that by checking the spine in a top-down manner, and we have some other tests that we can do as well. And that's what needs to happen because, again, you know, you don't just develop diabetes overnight. You didn't develop muscle weakness overnight. These are cumulative effects of long-standing subluxation. Yeah. And that's what we have to realize. And subluxation from the get-go early, early on was about interference in the function of the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've got to get back to. Totally. And I think that's, that's probably the challenge in research. So do you think there needs to be a new model of research developed? Because like you said, uh, when you have individuals in a research study, they all have a totally different environment. So they're all going to respond somewhat differently to care. So it's kind of hard to say that this for sure works on this. Um, So is there, is there a different model or, or what do you think would be, would be vital types of research that chiropractic needs to focus on? Well, what we need to look at is, is more and more about lifestyle outcomes of patients under chiropractic care. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you from my own practice, the patients that I have that I've been taking care of now for nearly 30 years have an entirely different level of illness or sickness or disease than other patients do. Right. And I'm getting, when I get a new patient comes in that's 40 years old, they've got a whole host of things going on. Right. When I look at a four-year-old who's been under care with me for 30 years, they're doing great. They get right. in a car accident, they bounce right back within a couple of weeks. Right. And, and so research is simply the search for an answer, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the root word of research is search. Yes. So we're just simply searching for an answer. But what's kind of key about this, I want to play on words, we're returning for the answer, which means the research follows the care. <laughs> research doesn't dictate care. Right. So you and I, evaluate a patient we search for interference in that patient right yep so the research should come after our care instead of before right and and so the mess up in the model is we're now trying to validate our care approach with now there's too many questions that come across as variables or confounders mm-hmm. and that's where the mess up is so we don't need a new model of research we need to get back to research Right. right. So when I take care of these people who have a turn test of 45 degrees to the left with one meter anterior displacement, okay, I adjusted them and what happened? Well, now they stand still. Okay, yeah. now research, you explain that because the research should follow my care. Yes. Not dictate what I can or can't do, right? Because as chiropractors, you are trained to remove subluxation. Right. You're not trained to read a paper that says, okay, now adjust them three times. Hundred percent. Well, I know it's interesting because that Dr. Kelly Holt on the podcast as well, and he said oh, that's great guy. That's why he said that's why it's so nice to get case studies because if we get case studies, we see a really cool example of what chiropractic care did for someone, and then if we have enough of those case studies, that creates the questions to create a new research study. Yep, and that's how it kind of feeds itself, and that that's exactly right because now you're putting the results out there for people to see, and then then research can come from that, and that's really how research evolved but i think sometimes we've gotten um where we're living at the altar of research and calling it evidence and research is not evidence research is only a a triad of the evidence evidence comes also from your clinical expertise and the patient desires and i think sometimes we're leaving that out and making it as though research was research equals evidence 
and it doesn't. Research is only a piece that can be supportive, but it's not the end all. And so that's why we looked at, at, at papers like this. It's like, okay, the SCMs and the scalings become hypertonic in forward head posture. Okay, what does that mean? I mean, now you're losing function of your neck and you've got early degenerative changes. Well, in chiropractic, we call it subluxation. Mm-hmm. And so now we have to realize, okay, how do we want to take care of that? Well, if the neck flexors are becoming stronger, if you will, than the neck oh, extensors, no. we need to create a neck extensor program. So the idea is getting back to using basic science to support our clinical applications. And, you know, it's like we, we develop our cervical curve by looking up and over our shoulder. Yeah. Especially as an infant. But yet most chiropractors are doing lay on cervical pillow to restore your curve. Right. Well, pa- passive rather than active. Yeah. And so that's, that's a mismatch of basic science. So you don't really need research. It's just going back to learn your anatomy and physiology and some embryology. And so we can easily read, implement those type of changes in school curriculum overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, just needs to happen. And so I think the associations need to help influence what's being taught in the school level, in the, at the school level, if you will. And so that our students can come out with a mentoring program with a better application of the information to the practice. And that's yeah. one of the things that's kind of missing. Well, I find, I, I think in the, in the whole profession, it seems like, like I said, I talked about at the beginning, we have, we have the people who say they're evidence-based or the people who are basically more symptom-based. And then you have the more vitalistic chiropractors who are, are looking for optimizing function. But somehow the vitalistic chiropractors have been labeled as spiritualists or, um, or historians. And that um, if they're a vitalistic chiropractor, uh, we need to evolve into the 21st century, which is quite hilarious because you just finished reading an article that just came out this year, which is cutting edge research on forward head posture that not any other profession in the whole world is doing. And that is, that's what we do. Exactly. And I think um, if I might go back to the the brain, if you will, uh, the left brain, right brain is the left brain is a liar. And what that means is that if a practitioner doesn't understand the bigger picture or the vision, which is your right brain, they're more likely to be what's considered your doubting Thomas. Yes. They're going to be skeptical, they're going to be negative, and they're going to want to try to beat down. And it's basically a lack of their own self-esteem, their own development, uh, their own ability to care for others. And so they're becoming very left brain analytical so much they couldn't see the, the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. That's why I went back to this earlier thing about what's happening to our children is that they can't see the big picture. Right. So they're getting overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And you'll sometimes hear this phrase, well, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking information from a fire hose. Yes. And they're getting anxious. And so now what you're seeing is that you're seeing a lot of these people who don't have maybe a really successful practice and maybe don't have um, a caring type of mentality. And this is, this is tricky because I don't want to, I don't want to upset any listeners but the gist is when you are social, then you are healthier mm-hmm. and especially healthier in your right brain, which is your more parasympathetic side. Right. But when you're still doubting why no one ever invites you to the party and why, you know, you're stuck in a cubicle somewhere right. and you're kind of alone, then your left brain is alone with its thoughts. Right. And so it's a, whole, it's a whole lot easier. And here's, here's the think about bullying in our, in our children, right? Um, or ourselves ask the question research is it easier to tear someone down or lift them up and for most people they'll tell you it's easier to tear someone down we even make contests out of it right we even have what's called smackdown 
but we don't have liftoff. Yeah, totally. Right? That's have, too hard. <laughs> exactly. Because you have to be on the right side of your brain to do it. Right. And so our physiology is such that we're on guard and we're more animalistic. We're more tearing into someone, we're more breaking them down. And this is part of our health consequence. And so, um, you know, people like yourself and, and, and others, if you will, and, and Kelly's a great guy as well. He gets the bigger picture, mm-hmm. which is why to him, case studies are important. Well, other researchers just want to see a meta-analysis. Right. Well, chances are they're not practicing. And I, yeah. I won't bother giving you a whole bunch of names of researchers who don't practice. Right. Uh, but you know what? That, I always bring it back to the chiropractor too, because even as vitalistic chiropractors, if we, if we like what I've known before is before I, it, my default was to fight the other side to show that, you know, yeah. the, the benefits of chiropractic. But, it's your emotions. Yeah, but that's left brain, right? So it, it's, it, it would, even though it's tougher for us, we need to make sure we try to get into our right brain and, and support other chiropractors that, that, that don't understand what this is rather than fight them, right? And I think if we have that fighting in the profession, that gets us more left brain and it just slows down our progress. And, and You're absolutely right. And I, I, I guess in some small way, I think that that's my purpose in life is to help the vision-oriented chiropractor have the information that they need. It's yeah. just like you see forward head postures. Like, you know, it, it is about the nervous system. And I think um, that's maybe it's part of our weak link, right? Mm-hmm. And just like when we see forward head posture, we can adjust the neck, but now we've got to create a movement pattern to now to support withstand it. it. Mm-hmm. We've got technology, but we need a little bit of time away as well to reconnect with people. So it's not the technology is all bad. It's just if that's all we do, we're going to have troubles. Mm-hmm. And um, let, me, let me share one more article with you. Is that okay? Yeah, that would be perfect. Actually, I've got a couple more, but uh, this is also, um, this is really old. This was uh, last month. Um, <laughs> Clinics and, orth- Clinic and Orthopedic Surgery, uh, 2018. Now, let me just give you, now this is a, a medical journal, right? Yeah. But just hear, just hear the title for our listeners, if you will. Impact of Fat Infiltration in Cervical Extensor Muscles on Cervical Lordosis and Neck Pain. Interesting. Now, anywhere I go in the world, I say, hey, chiropractors, in your practice, what's the prevalence of a straight neck and almost, almost invariably they'll go 90 percent yeah all of them and you know don let me ask you this when's the last time you saw an article that said hey the prevalence of a straight neck in the general population is 90 percent no i haven't seen that's, that. the, that's the research we're not doing right but we could do that research tomorrow to create a public service announcement if you have a straight neck see your chiropractor yeah 100 yeah, percent. and you would change things overnight if we just did what we do best right mm-hmm. But so this is an article in a medical journal, right? So weakness of, and here's the opening statement, weakness of cervical extensor muscles cause loss of cervical lordosis, which causes neck pain. And neck pain alters the blood supply to your frontal lobe. And altered blood supply to your frontal lobe increases alarm physiology known as synthetic dominance, which causes tachycardia, dizziness, irritable bowel, leaky gut. Oh yeah, and that thing called hypertension, which is the number one killer of men worldwide. I don't get why people don't understand that. <laughs> no, we need ten more research papers. Researchers, <laughs> yeah, we need a research paper that says you have a neck. Yeah. But anyway, so so here's the fun thing about this article: is we hear the term fat infiltration. Now, whether you're in Canada or Texas, here's the gist. Um, and I liken it back to food because we like food, right? Yeah. But what makes a good steak so tasty and flavorful? Oh, the fat. The fat, right? So when you have fatty infiltration into a muscle, right, that's going to make for a tasty steak. And so whether we're looking at the uh, T-bone steak and the thoracic spine, the multiple thigh and so forth, here's the gist, is that when 
there's fatty infiltration in a muscle, one of the first things to consider is disuse of that muscle. 100%. All right. Now, if we take the article on forward head posture from imaging, and now we have increased strength of your flexors, and now you have weakness of your extensors, guess what we lose? Our cervical curve. Yep. Which now means we have chronic upper back and neck pain. We've got spinal degeneration. We've got intervertebral disc disorders. You've got radiculopathy and radicular patterns, entrapment syndromes. And there's the bulk of our conditions that people come in with, but it's not until we correct the cervical curve that they have a, a chance in hell for, for health. Great. And so we can't let conditions and treatment dictate patient care. Otherwise, we're going to continue to have these frequent episodes, this intermittent patient population, which no one's really getting better. We're just buying time before the next condition kicks in. Yep. Until we start taking care of people. Even the CPR instructor knows that you should have a cervical lordosis. <laughs> That's a so funny. Yeah. A, B, C, right? Airway. Put a lordosis in their neck. Open the airway. Anyway, so in here it says that, here's what's interesting about this as well. The results suggest that fatty infiltration in the upper cervical extensor muscles has relevance to the loss of cervical lordosis. Now, here's the key. Infiltration in the upper cervical extensors has relevance to the loss of cervical lordosis. That's up here. Yeah. That's your SCN suboccipitals, okay? And then the fat infiltration in the lower cervical extensors is associated with cervical spine, spine functional disability. So intervertebral disc degeneration, uh, and we've all seen the C5, C6 degenerative spine, the surgeries and so forth, right? Yep. So that's kind of infiltration in the lower. So lower spine infiltration is cervical spine function. Mm -hmm. So that's more coronal plane, right? Lateral yep. bending, rotation, so forth. Upper cervical spine infiltration is more loss of the lordosis. Right. That should be very important to us clinically. Yes. So if we adjust C5 and C6, we might help their pain range scenario. Yeah. Exactly. Range of motion and their pain, but we won't change their what? Forehead posture. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I hope you guys are taking notes. If you guys are driving right now listening to this podcast, you're going to be like, I need to pause this. Just pull over. <laughs> yeah, just pull over and stop right now. Yeah. And so, I should put a warning at the beginning of this one. Uh, please do not uh, listen to this podcast while operating. <laughs> but, but now you can see why so many of our patients who come in with this upper trap and upper back pain is referred from the cervical spine, i.e. sclerotomes, cervical genitourse algae. We can adjust C5, 6, 7 and help their pain, and we can rub out the, 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 the upper traps and do massage and whatever else, but if we don't correct the use of the upper cervical spine, we can't change their lordosis, which means the top-down approach, if you don't correct the top, the down is just gonna keep on going on and going on. Right. And now what happens is, just getting on a rant real quick, is that when the head goes forward, so does the pelvis. So the biggest cause of low back pain is forward head posture. <laughs> <laughs> and and how many chiropractors like have been trained this is not they, they've been actually trained that if they have a low back pain and no symptoms in the neck not to look at it they've probably not been trained very well unless they've been to true concept seminars um, or have been to my functional neurology seminars <laughs> or, right? because, or otz or something too right because yeah. that that's yeah, I mean, because otherwise most of our schools get taught teaching segments right we yeah. get caught teaching here's cervical spine conditions here's lumbar spine, and we're not using things like pelvo-ocular reflex, the writing reflex, and integrating it to how we're supposed to have neurological function. Mm -hmm. And putting your head in the right place is one of your basic life-preserving reflexes. And we're not giving it its due attention that we need to. And so I just thought this was a really great article, but um, 
it just went on to talk about, uh, you know, when you have a lost extensor tone, you get kyphosis, you get degenerative changes. And so for the most part, what this means to the chiropractor is if we simply worked on focusing on restoring the cervical curve, which again is not by adjusting C5, 6, and 7, it's by what we do further up. And that's what we got to kind of make a take-home note on is that the upper cervical spine is more about your lordosis, while the lower cervical spine is more about your side-to-side movement. Mm-hmm. And, and that's key for us, right? Because we know, you and I both, that we get a whole lot of C5, C6, degenerative conditions, pain, upper trap, middle back, blah, blah, blah. And we can make them feel better, but we've also known if we're, as practitioners, if we're honest, that doesn't necessarily restore curve. And putting someone over a traction device, but not engaging the upper cervical muscles. And, and here's the thing, putting someone on a traction device, whether it's a cervical pillow or a denny roll or whatever, doesn't remove disuse atrophy. We've right. got to use our necks. And yep. with, with the imaging that's going on, we need doctors to learn how to properly move the neck to offset these changes that come as a consequence of technology, which on a bigger scale is altering our thoughts, beliefs, perceptions, and ultimately our actions and behaviors to the detriment of other people. Mm-hmm. And this is huge. So I don't want to sound too crazy, if you will, but you can make a definite correlation association back to your cervical spine health and your mental attitude, especially towards others. Yeah. And I think chiropractors, yourself, Brand, you're great examples of, of caring for others, which is why you, you, you put your message out there. So again, kudos to you. But we need to get more chiropractors understanding how we get a curve and that by restoring a curve, you change so much of another individual's physiology and health that that's where our research needs to be focused on. Now, I just wanted to get just a little, we don't have too much time to be able to go right into it, but, uh, but when you're talking about upper cervical, a lot of times people are just thinking Atlas. And, and I wanted you just to briefly just describe some of the common things you're finding with occiput. Yeah, so we, we have to realize that if we go back to, and again, no disrespect at all to upper cervical because they're upstairs, right? Yeah. But we have to realize that when we do our notations and our documentations, we oftentimes say CO. Yep. C1, C2, C3. And so we have to recall that the occiput is the first articulation of the upper cervical spine and not just C1. And there's a lot of mechanical techniques that address the atlas but aren't necessarily vitalistic. And so from an, what we might add embryologically is that the first muscle group to develop was the suboccipital. Mm-hmm. And in utero, the first input to the nervous system was from the vestibular canals. And that the SCMs are not neck flexors because they neither originate or insert into the cervical spine whatsoever, but they simply move the occiput. And so when we talk about forward head posture, when the head goes forward, it's the occiput that extends the, excuse me, it's the SCMs that extend the occiput upon atlas and axis. So you're seeing disuse atrophy in the suboccipitals while your SCMs have become hypertonic, but it's the occiput that has been subluxated first. And what we realized if we go back into our developmental studies and research and so forth is that the occipital condyles are in the same plane of of design as is the pull of the SCMs, as is the convergence of the eyes. And you have until about between the ages of three and six, as the brain is making a migration pattern from right to left to make sure that those condyles line up properly. So we need to make sure we don't forget to look at the occiput, um, but we probably... I think many chiropractors could use uh, a little bit of an additional study on the occiput. And, and 
I do have a preference for OTZ in their approach and their assessment um, because there's a lot of things there. And yeah. uh, we need to look at that. We need That's to look at that a lot closer. And just for people, if they wanted to, to, to go to one of your OTC seminars, um, what's the website or what information could they get to, to do that? Thank, thank you. So you can go to, now my website is braindc.org. If they want to see a, a list of the seminars I'm teaching. And also you can go to otzhealthed.com, which is Dr. Francis Murphy and I is the website for the OTZ seminars. And right now he and I have made a commitment to kind of begin to merge the neurology and the technique uh, to present to chiropractors kind of worldwide. So a lot of good things there, but otzhealthed.com or braindc.org. That's and and you're, you're you're thinking of doing some research too. You're telling before the podcast you guys are doing. What, can you kind of can you preframe what you guys what the question is? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, what's just real briefly? What started a long time ago is looking at the work of Dr. Murphy and this OTZ technique um, with frozen shoulder. Yeah. And it's been short of miracle, but we realized that it really is a brain-based thing. So we've had tremendous impact on children with uh, autism, with ADHD, uh, with insomnia in adults, with a variety of health conditions as a result of providing care to the occiput. Mm -hmm. And so now it's, it's we, we published a paper back in 2012 as well, and uh, we've gotten the attention of a lot of neurophysiologists and neuroanatomists, and such as Heidi Havik um, in our profession, as well as Bernadette Murphy. And so they're now doing some research to look at the effects of this technique on the brain and the conditions that are influenced by the resolution of this subluxation complex. So it's kind of some exciting stuff. It's probably going to be ongoing for the next couple of years, but uh, it's exciting. I, I love that. You said um, the conditions that seem to resolve as an effect of restoring function or something like that, because it's not treating the yeah. condition. But we've seen improvement of these certain conditions when we resolve that physiology. And it's kind, of what, it's kind of what we want our message to be is we're going to remove the subluxation in a top-down manner, just like the prefrontal cortex does top-down association as well. So as we remove interference, we should see a change in, in a variety of conditions. And now the research is going to monitor what those conditions are. That's awesome. Well, um, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, in, in the last minute or so, I just want you to – to take a minute to share uh, like any parting inspirational words to the listeners from around the world. Uh, for the most part, what I can offer guys is that you're that what it means to be human is to, to be in concert with one another. So we need to put people in our lives and um, whether we want to play the game about lives matter or research or whatever we want to look at. The, the idea is that your practice is a social outlet for yourself. Ask what your patients have for their social outlet. Um, changing brain is changing lives. And as we seek to remove subluxation, we are truly changing and imparting lives. So for all the listeners here, chiropractic staff and chiropractors, reignite your passion, get on board, and uh, let's up your game to up chiropractic. And that would be my take-home message for today. Thanks, Dr. That's, Don. That's awesome. Well, everybody, um, you're going to probably listen to this podcast lots of times because there's some amazing information out there. And really, let's get out there and, and, and restore some curves and restore some lives. Um, and when you do that you can crush the curse. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you've received value from this episode, please share this with a fellow chiropractor and take some time to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever your favorite place is to listen to podcasts. If you're interested in learning more about our programs and events, please visit www.thevitalityshift.com or connect with me on Facebook. I would love to hear from you.
So until next time, Dr. Don out. <laughs>